In Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, we have been looking at the petitionary prayer of Paul and Timothy in behalf of the Colossians. And in this prayer, we have considered that there was one principal petition, one main thing that they were praying for, and that was that God would fill the Colossians with an exhaustive and personal knowledge of his revealed will, with every degree of spiritual perception and comprehension and aptitude for applying that will in their lives. The purpose of this prayer and the result of its answer was then set forth in verse 10, which was that the Colossians would live their lives in a way appropriate to, becoming of, answerable to, the Lord Jesus Christ whom they served and the gospel which they professed. There would be no hypocrisy, no boasting of the law and then breaking it, nothing to bring Christ's name into reproach among men, other than the reproach of the gospel itself, which is not Uh, a thing that is truly reproachful, but only uh, met with reproach because men are wicked. God would not be shamed, but his gospel would be adorned by the holy living of his people. And the ultimate end of such a becoming and gospel-adorning way of life was then set forth. It was unto all pleasing of the Lord. God delights in the holy living of his people that is becoming to their profession. It pleases him. He takes pleasure in it. And that, as we remember, ought to be our principal concern in all things. How, what shall we do that we may please the Lord? And such a general holiness leads to a general pleasing of the Lord. Now then, in verses... Uh, 10b, the latter half of verse 10 through verse 12 of this chapter, Paul sets forth in more detail just the sort of things which he envisions under the idea of a gospel-honoring, God-pleasing way of life. And then also in the broader connection to verse 9, we remember that these things are the very types of things that are secured by God's people being filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And they are described, there are four things that are listed from the second half of verse 10 through verse 12. Bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened in all power according to the power of his glory unto all endurance and patience with grace, and then giving thanks to the Father who has made, which has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. Uh, we will look at each one of these, not today, we'll look at the first two of those four today. Uh, considering their own meaning, 
their relationship to a gospel-honoring walk and their relationship to the principal petition for a filling with discerning grace. And then also, we'll consider how these things function uh, to defuse or oppose the uh, doctrines of those who were attempting to corrupt the Colossians with false teaching. The first thing that is mentioned as being part of a Christ-honoring walk of life and the first result of the divine filling with the knowledge of truth is a general holiness that is described as bearing fruit in every good work. Now this idea of bearing fruit is a constant image in the scriptures and it is always used as a metaphor for gospel holiness. Uh, the most important passage of all of these I think, is in John chapter 15, verses 1 through 8. And I want to read that. Christ is speaking and he says this, I am the true vine and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. And every branch that, branch that bears fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can you except you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me you can do nothing. If a man abide not in me, he is cast forth as a branch and is withered. And men gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit. So shall ye be my disciples. Fruit-bearing first of all, is the necessary result of true union with Christ. He that abides in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. The man who is joined to Christ by faith receives the spirit of Christ. And that spirit is a holy spirit. And that spirit brings with it a fruit that is called the fruit of the Spirit. So, for example, in Ephesians chapter 5, uh, verse 9, we read these words, For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And also, in Galatians 5, 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Fruit-bearing is the necessary result of true union with Christ because Christ communicates His Spirit his Holy Spirit to those who are in union with him and that Holy Spirit bears the fruit of the Spirit. Secondly, for this reason, fruit bearing is the chief outward test of the legitimacy 
of one's gospel profession. Men are not told merely to profess repentance, but to bring forth fruits meet for repentance, aren't they? Not merely to say, I repent of sin. The gospel calls for men to show their repentance by demonstrating the appropriate fruits of repentance. And so it is that we find in the account of Zacchaeus uh, that uh, when he announces his purpose of restitution for all of the fraudulent gain that he has made, fourfold, I believe it was, and when he also announces his purpose of a liberal bestowal of his goods upon the poor, half of what he had, which is the very opposite of covetousness, only then is it said by Christ, salvation is come to this house. Not because Zacchaeus's works justified him or saved him, but because when he announced that purpose to bring forth those fruits, uh, that he was confessing sin and making restitution for his sin against men, which demonstrated his repentance before God and his reception of the gospel. Fruit-bearing is the chief outward test of the legitimacy of one's gospel profession. Thirdly, fruit-bearing glorifies God. God is displeased, God is dishonored by the barren tree. And that tree will be cut down and cast into the fire. I do believe that God would prefer, if we may use such words, for a man never to profess his name and live in wickedness than for a man to profess his name and live in wickedness. Uh, it does not uh, bring open shame to God uh, when a man uh, denies him and lives in wickedness because that man's rebellion is evident. It brings open and terrible shame to the Lord when a man professes the name of Jesus Christ and his gospel and then lives in wickedness. And that tree, that branch, will be cut down and cast into the fire. But the fruit-bearing fruit bearing tree brings him glory because it shows his handiwork and his powerful grace. And it is especially glorifying to God given man's <clears throat> current condition. When fruit is brought forth from a tree that is by nature dead or rotten to the core, that is truly a miracle. Can we imagine what it would be like to go outside and see a tree so absolutely rotten into its core that we could just knock it right over? It's been dead, it's dead, it's been dead for as long as anyone has known. And suddenly the tree comes to life, puts out leaves and bears wonderful and bountiful fruit. That would be an amazing thing. And that is exactly what happens in the life of the man who is converted by grace. That which is dead and rotten and barren and suitable only for burning in the fire suddenly, miraculously, becomes a bountiful tree bearing gospel fruit. And that also is glorifying to God. Herein is my Father glorified that she bear much fruit. 
And then uh, I meant to mention also this verse, so shall ye be my disciples, as connected with what I had said before about the fruit bearing being the chief outward uh, demonstration of the legitimacy of religious professions. So shall ye be my disciples. So it is the necessary result of true union with Christ. It is the chief outward test of the legitimacy of a gospel profession, and it glorifies God. Fourthly, Fruit-bearing is God's purpose in election and redemption. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit and that your fruit should remain. And also, of course, uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. So you see, uh, we are accustomed to thinking of redemption, of salvation, in the narrow sense of the term, as being part of God's eternal counsel. God has chosen men from before the foundation of the world to be his people. It is his eternal counsel. But also... Part of his eternal counsel is the good works that those very people shall bring forth. God did not set his love upon a people. He did not save a people that they might live in idolatry and rebellion as the hard-hearted Israelites did. The law could command but could not bring life. And so the Israelites lived in rebellion and idolatry. But under the new covenant God has made, the law, he says, is written on the heart. And no man shall have to say to one another, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest. The new covenant is the promise made to Abraham, the life-giving covenant. And with life comes the actions of life. When a person, when a person is born, they breathe. They uh, 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 make noise. They move. So when a per it's the actions that are natural to physical life. So it was when, when uh, dead Lazarus was called forth back to life. He got up and walked out of the grave. So it is when spiritual life comes. The natural actions of spiritual life are holiness. And when God grants that life, men live and bring forth holiness because God has so ordained it. It is part of his eternal counsel in election and redemption. The second thing, main thing, that we want to notice about the fruit bearing here is once again the universal nature of this fruit bearing. Paul says fruit bearing, bearing fruit in every good work. The gospel tree is a multi-fruited tree. Have you ever seen any of those trees? They're specialty trees they sell now that by grafting onto one trunk, uh, you can make bear one tree, bear many different kinds of fruit. You can take one tree, you can graft an apple onto it, and a peach, and a tangerine, and a lemon, and an orange, and they'll all... Each branch that you graft on off of this one trunk will bear all of these different kinds of fruit. 
And that's what the gospel tree is like. It bears, it's not a, an orange tree or an apple tree. It's the orange and the apple and the fig and the plum and the peach and the lemon and the tangerine and on and on. As far as gospel holiness goes, the tree that bears only one fruit is as useless and dead as the tree that bears no fruit. Imagine, for example, the man who is all severity against sin, but has not an ounce of mercy within him. Or the man that is all mercy with no severity against sin. Imagine the man that is all for the union of the church without an ounce of consideration for the purity of the church. Or the man that is all for the purity of the church to the extremest of extremes and cares not an ounce for any necessary union. Imagine the person that is all for gospel forgiveness but has no place for gospel holiness. Or the one who is all for gospel holiness but none for forgiveness. Each one of these is misshapen. Uh, pathetic and perverted figures they become. Heretics, in fact. Uh, the man who has knowledge of one thing is little better than the man who has knowledge of nothing. Second Corinthians <clears throat> chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Now our Lord Jesus Christ himself, and God even our Father, who has loved us and has given us everlasting consolation and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Hebrews uh, chapter 13, verses 20 and 21. Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, that's the new covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Every good work, working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight. So to summarize, a God-pleasing, gospel-adorning walk is marked, first of all, by a vigorous and general gospel holiness, a fruit-bearing. And that gospel holiness is begotten by God's filling of men with the knowledge of his divine will. As we have a sincere and inward knowledge of the will of God, the same Spirit works in us a sincere and inward obedience to that will. For this is the will of God, even our sanctification. And uh, insofar as, as it is an uh, extensive knowledge, so far is it also an extensive holiness. Now as we continue in Colossians, uh, there is a second item on this list, being increased in the knowledge of God. Uh, there is some discussion about how this verse should be translated and some debate over whether certain prepositions should be in it or not, or it should be a different preposition. And uh, I've uh, taken the rendering that is behind the authorized version, 
and also given the most uh, literal rendering. The most immediate thing to note, first of all, is that the uh, participle here is passive. In the active form, we might translate it growing, though even that we consider to be a passive activity. Uh, here it is being grown, if you will, being increased. This is not something that the Colossians are conceived of as doing themselves, not something they do to themselves or for themselves. They are not conceived of as growing themselves or increasing their own knowledge. Rather, they are conceived of as being acted upon by another, those who receive increase, those who are grown by another. And this is a very vital distinction wherever it occurs. We do not grow ourselves physically or spiritually. Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit unto his stature? Well, no one. And so likewise, spiritually, we are God's vineyard. He plants the plants. He waters and provides the nutrients. He blesses that which he has provided to our spiritual health. Some of these things, of course, are accomplished through means, such as gospel ministers and so forth. But it is still uh, God who giveth the increase. We grow because God grows us and for no other reason. And were God to withdraw himself, we would immediately become stunted. In fact, we would wither and die. Our spiritual life is from God. Our spiritual growth is from him as well. Now, the particular thing that's conceived of here makes sense, of course, considering this is a prayer, that it would be in a passive form. The particular thing conceived of here is being increased in the knowledge of God. Now, this is different uh, from the main petition of verse 9. There, it was that, that uh, they might be filled with the knowledge of His will. Here, it is an increase in the knowledge of God Himself, His essence, His character, His attributes, His person, His being. It is an increase in the knowledge of who God is. You see, just as when we have a, a, a relationship with another person, uh, we gradually, if they are honest and self-revealing, we gradually learn more and more of their character and of their desires, of their loves and hatreds, and of their nature and personality. And so it is with God. We know only a little bit of God at the beginning. But as we continue in relationship with him, we are increased in our knowledge of who he is and what he is like. So that he is not some far away person whom we fear and obey because of the wrath that he may execute upon us. He is a loving, personal father with whom we have a relationship, whom we reverence with humility and respect, whom we obey out of love. And again, it is the word epigenosis here, the clear, inward, exhaustive knowledge of God, of the person of God, as exhaustive as we ever get, of who God is. This is an important thing to remember. Uh, I think it's frequently overlooked. Uh, too often this is neglected, I think, uh, particularly in our day amongst those who grab hold of the importance of 
doctrine to remember that God is not a page out of a book. He's not a subject to be studied. Uh, he is. He has being and existence. He is a divine uh, person, if you will. We can know him. Uh, and uh, just as if a person is a strange, we consider a person a stranger when we know little about them, little of about what they're like, little about who they are and their heart, and we consider them to be close when we know those things intimately. So it ought to be with God, and I fear that too often uh, we are strangers with Him. Now what is astonishing here is, of course, that this passage sets forth this, this increase in the knowledge of the person of God as being secured, at least in part, by a knowledge of the will of God. And that is because it is especially in what God does and what God says that we learn about who he is. Many people divorce these things today. They can talk all day of their relationship with the Lord and how he just blesses them and yet never once mention his revelation of himself in his word. In fact, in fact, when they do talk about him, they'll often talk about him contrary to his revelation of himself in his word, so that evidently they have obtained such an intimate knowledge of God that they can correct his own revelation by it. In fact, they design and fashion a God for themselves who is contrary to the word. And this goes on in lesser ways and greater ways uh, on the more liberal spectrum of things we're always hearing things such like oh I could never serve a God who damns men to hell oh I could never serve a God if you want to move it a little more conservative I could never serve a God who damns men who've never heard the gospel and thus had a quote opportunity uh, to uh, believe in Jesus uh, oh, I could never serve a God who's so narrow-minded and bigoted as to condemn and forbid and insert sin here. Uh, find, pick sin as listed in the scriptures and insert in blank, uh, depending on who you're talking to. Uh, and yet, he will do all of those things. He is all of those things, and he commands us to do so uh, as well insofar as we emulate him in our lives. The moment we depart from the word, in some way, lesser or greater, we deface the true image of God. The knowledge of God's revelation is the pathway to the knowledge of God himself. And it is when God fills us with this knowledge of his will that we are also increased in our knowledge of his person and thus enabled to have a closer uh, more intimate relationship with him. Secondly, uh, we must note that this increase in the knowledge of God is part of the walk that is becoming to our profession of him. God does not hide himself from us. He is not dark and unknown and mysterious like some god of the pagans who uh, exists only in a black room, a uh, dark black room, and they uh, just fear it. Uh, no, God reveals himself. He reveals who he is. And this knowledge is vital 
to our walk of life and faith, it is neither reasonable nor is it appropriate for us to serve a God about whom and of whom we know nothing. But notice that it is not the knowledge of God that it is here connected with a Christ-honoring life. It is increasing in the knowledge of God. That we would know Him is assumed. We must or we are not His people. It is that we should know more and more of Him and be growing in Him and increasing in the knowledge of Him. That is the thing here that is listed as being the God-honoring walk and the thing that pleases Him. Not for us just to know Him, but to know Him more and more, to increase, to be increased. We must not stagnate. We must grow in the knowledge of God. And thirdly, notice that when we know God and when we increase in this knowledge, it pleases Him. God is not only pleased by our growing holiness as we live our lives to His glory in the world, He is pleased by our growing relationship with Him. He created us. He redeemed us. Not merely to obey Him, but to know Him, to have fellowship with Him, to delight in Him, to commune with Him in the Word and in prayer. It is easy to forget this today. With the vital importance of stressing the necessity of holiness on the one hand, and the fanatical, anti-scriptural, uh, anti-hostile, hostile to scripture discussion of relationship with God that is so prevalent amongst modern evangelicals, it is easily to ab- it is easy to abandon this altogether. Uh, but that would be a terrible mistake. That would be to try to walk uprightly apart from loving God and knowing Him intimately. God is not impressed by our endeavors apart from Him, nor can they succeed. All of these things are intertwined. Holiness, in one sense, grows out of a loving and close relationship with God. True holiness, not the holiness that is motivated by slavish fear, but the holiness that is motivated by sincere love, Sincere love implies the knowledge of a person. But the parameters of the relationship are themselves defined by and controlled by the Word of God and the holiness of God. So two things then. Uh, Bearing fruit in every good work and being increased in the knowledge of God. Now how do these things... uh, We've already discussed uh, how each of them uh, are the... Are, are part of a God-honoring walk, uh, being fruitful and in increasing in our knowledge and relationship uh, with Him. Uh, we've discussed how they are secured by being filled with the knowledge of the divine will and how they please God. But how do they relate to Paul's purpose with regard, or do they relate to his purpose with regard to the heretical doctrines and teachers? And I believe they do. The first point which Paul has labored to establish here is that the, that the increase in the knowledge of the divine will brought about by the work of the Holy Spirit leads directly and necessarily to an increase in general holiness, to a comprehensive fruit-bearing of good works. And what that fact does 
is it condemns the purely speculative element of the opposing philosophy, but more than that, it exposes the opposing doctrines as empty, vain, powerless teaching because they do not, nor were they capable of, bringing about true godliness. And so they are exposed as being worthless and empty things, vanity and madness. You see, they don't have any power behind them. There's no blessing of the Spirit resting upon them. That knowledge that they are being filled with is not a filling by the Holy Spirit of the knowledge of the divine will, because that would bring forth fruit in every good work. But that opposing philosophy is a barren tree, a, an empty tree, worthy to be cut down and cast into the fire. It's powerless and empty. And in fact, uh, in fact, too often false teaching is powerful to bring about false practice either an unbiblical emphasis on one thing or another that leads eventually to heretical <coughs> positions and behaviors, or a completely aberrant observance. And the latter was more the case here, as we'll see. People worshiping angels, people practicing asceticism, people submitting to Old Testament law that's fulfilled and done away in Christ, grasping at the shadows instead of taking hold of the reality that was right there in front of them. The truth is powerful in the hearts of believers to conform them to the holiness of the Lord. The opposing teachings had no such fruit and no such power and therefore no such divine authorship. Now that is something we need to remember today. We are surrounded by claims of uh, truth. I have the truth. We have the truth. Everyone has the truth. The Mormons have the truth. JWs have the truth. Uh, the, the children of God have the truth. David Koresh has Everybody supposedly has the truth. But Paul gives us, as part of the standard of measurement, uh, that divine truth leads to gospel, scripture-appointed holiness. And what we will always find, what we will always find, is that these false doctrines are either deficient in producing gospel holiness, or aberrant in producing something altogether different and contrary to the word. So that when men... Uh, come to us with claims of truth and we see that their lives are full of repulsive wickedness, uh, then we have reason to question the grounds uh, w whether what they are teaching us or claiming our attention for is really true. Secondly, Gnostic-type teachings have always emphasized mystic union with divinity as one of the goals to be attained. Uh, this was sought, on the one hand, through the most extreme asceticism, uh, uh, even beatings of the body, the sort of things that we see in some of the developments of popery as they uh, rose up, uh, people 
fasting themselves nearly to death, uh, going up on top of, of poles, the pole sitters, guys who went and sat up on top of poles for years at a time, went in the cave, wouldn't have anything to do with anybody, and people just brought them little scraps of food that they'd come out and get. Or, or on the other hand, extreme fleshly indulgence was another feature of the two extremes of Gnostic-type views, that these were means to mystical union with God and to... Uh, uh, particularly to holiness in general, but also to mystical union with God, that if one indulged the flesh completely, then one would attain unto union with divinity in the most wicked of imaginable practices. And also through mystical enlightenment, that was another big one, to contemplation and meditation, not meditation upon the word of God, not treasuring it up in our hearts, but just sort of a mystical experience would bring union with God. And we even find that breaking out in uh, Protestantism and aberrant forms of Protestantism, such as those mystics who rebelled against dead Lutheranism and carried themselves into they were called the pietists and carried themselves into speculative mysticism. Uh, Paul acknowledges the importance here of knowing God and of being in relationship with him. Though, of course, he means something very different than mystical uh, union in the sense attaining to divinity that the Gnostics might have meant. But he acknowledges that there is relationship to be had, uh, uh, communion to be had with God. But once again, the path to such knowledge and relationship, he grounds firmly in the word of God and in the revealed will of God. The divine filling of the knowledge of the revealed will, that breeds and works this knowledge of God and leads to this relationship with him. And in this way, Paul once again stands in firm opposition to the dreams of the opposing teachers. He stands on the word of God and the revelation of God's will. How shall we know God? Learn of me. Where shall we learn of him? In what he has revealed unto us by his word. And once again, vital importance for us today. The word of God must be central to all Christian experience. It is through the Word of God, through knowing Him through the Word, that we can then uh, commune with Him in prayer. We commune with Him in prayer and in the Word and in the worship of God. And we have relationship with Him and we know Him. It's when we learn of His character as merciful as one who will provide for all our needs according to his love for his people, that we are then stirred up to trust in him and to rely upon him and rest upon him and lean upon him. It's when we hear the proposals of the gospel that God is willing to be reconciled, that we are stirred up to to, to, to rest upon the Lord Jesus for salvation, when we hear him inviting and commanding, come unto me, whosoever will may come and take of the waters of life freely, when we learn of his character as one who is ready to receive sinners. 
Then we are stirred up and encouraged to go to Him in faith and rest upon Him. When we learn of His character through the Word as being all-powerful and as being a God who takes vengeance upon sin, then we are encouraged to rely upon Him when men wickedly oppose us, as we've heard in the Psalms, that when we have a good conscience before God and men come against us wickedly because they're evil and they hate God and they persecute us and oppose us, when we know the power of God because of what He's revealed in His Word and His faithfulness to His people, then once again we 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 rely upon Him, we trust in Him, we know that He will deliver us, or that if He allows us to perish according to the flesh, He will save us eternally, and that it is for His glory and for the glory of Jesus Christ. When we learn of His character in the Word, then in life we are enabled to draw close to Him and to know Him and to lean and rest and trust upon Him. But when we depart from the Word, the moment that we depart from the Word then we have made ourselves, to some degree or another, an idol, a false god, and it leads us to either despair and ruin or false practice and presumption. So the Word of God is the pathway to true enlightenment, to, to true union with God. And, tr and to relationship with Him.